Welcome to the Bruce Collins Show, After Dark Edition. Welcome back to the Bruce Collins Show After Dark Edition. Our guest this week is Brian Forster. Brian Forster has been studying the subject of elongated skulls. Where did these mysterious skulls come from? How did many civilizations across thousands and thousands of miles, even oceans, come up with the same idea 
of binding the skull to create this unusual irregular shape. We'll talk to our guest direct from Peru about his findings. The mystery of the elongated skulls has fascinated me for many years, and there are many cut-and-paste authors, those who have not actually been on the ground, to study these skulls firsthand. But I found someone in Peru who has actually been researching these skulls for many years, and his name is Brian Forster. Coincidentally, in the news on February 28th, in Pravda, at the Pravda website, english.pravda.ru, in fact, is an article entitled, Mystery of King Tut's Birth Unveiled, and it's regarding King Tutankhamun, the most famous ancient Egyptian pharaoh. He was the son of the most famous Egyptian queen, Nefertiti, and of course Nefertiti, or Nefertiti, depending on how you pronounce it, had many children. Even in Egypt, the queen, Nefertiti, she had daughters as well as sons. And some illustrations show a little princess with an unusual form of an elongated skull. These skulls are found all over the world. What's their connection? How did this idea cross many miles? Today, we could look at a fad and blame the media, or blame the movies, or blame some superstar for causing us all to adopt this. What made these people all around the world adopt this idea of the elongated skull? And what were the effects of children and adults whose heads were bound to create these deformed shapes? We're going to ask all these questions and many more, including the theories surrounding the elongated skull, with our guest Brian Forster in a moment. And he actually drops a bombshell, an unintended bombshell, about what is going on with another researcher. Listen in and see if you find that part. Some stones saw the skin and bones of a city without a soul. I went out walking 
Joining us this week, I'm really excited about this topic and our guest. He's the author of many books, including Lost Ancient Technology of Peru and Bolivia, and he's also co-authored The Enigma of Cranial Deformation, Elongated Skulls of the Ancients, and he co-wrote that with David Hatcher Childress. And Brian's website, Brian spelled B-R-I-E-N, Forster, F-O-E-R-S-T-E-R, brianforster.com. You'll find out a lot of great information about Brian on that website, as well as uh, his other books. Brian, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Bruce. Well, it's a uh, it's an exciting thing to uh, talk about. Um, I've heard about this subject over the years, but I haven't really delved too deeply into it, and you're kind of the go-to guy, I think, right now to talk about these things. And I believe you're living in Peru now. Uh, what led you to this region of the world? Uh, basically, it's been a lifelong fascination with uh, indigenous people. I grew up on the west coast of Canada, and I studied totem pole making with native people. Uh, that actually was my profession for a number of years. And then afterwards, um, I drew very much interested in uh, ancient Hawaiian and Polynesian cultures, and so I spent a number of years um, studying that, living in Hawaii for two years and then traveling throughout Polynesia. And then after I was satisfied with that, for some reason, um, my interest was drawn to Peru, and I've been here off and on for the last seven years. Hmm. So... Uh, what are the major misconceptions about the Incas? I, I believe I heard an interview with you, t- and you were saying that um, it seems like some of the things that are attributed to them having built, that perhaps they were built before their time, correct? Well, that is correct. And the funny thing is that today I met with a local expert, um, Senior Renato, and uh, he, he has um, done a lot of delving into uh, records which are not written especially not in English, but in general are not in the public arena. And he's been able to document three major cultures which preceded the Inca. And as strange as it sounds, um, from what he says, Cusco itself was begun as a city about 12,000 years ago, just after the end of the last Ice Age. Hmm. Interesting. You know, one of, one of the aspects of your research is these elongated skulls, which are uh, a very fascinating subject. These are not, though, just a phenomenon found in Peru, correct? That is correct. The most famous ones that have been photographed are actually in Peru, and more specifically, an area called Paracas, which is south of Lima. But it's a global phenomenon. Uh, It was most common about 2,000 years ago, and it was in uh, Peru and Bolivia, as well as other parts of South America, as well as Central America, um, Eastern Europe, Russia, um, Iraq, um, and even in Melanesia in the Pacific. Hmm. So when we say elongated, what are we talking about? How much of a deformity or difference is there to an average skull? And from all the pictures I've seen, it appears that sort of the back part of their skull is going 
sort of up and backward, right? Yeah, basically, the thing is, David and I uh, wrote the book about cranial deformation because most archaeologists and anthropologists believe that um, all examples of uh, cranial deformation done culturally was done on purpose. Uh, and so, in general, uh, the phenomenon is called cradle boarding, where a, a newborn infant's uh, skull is uh, delicately bound, usually with textiles, sometimes with a board in the back and maybe in the front, and then gradually over the period of uh, six months to three years, the shape is altered. Um, the classic shape is literally like a cone head. Hmm. Fascinating. So is there a, a historical record, or, or can we estimate how far back these elongated skulls go? Well, the farthest back that I've, I've been able to estimate based on archaeological evidence is maybe four to 6,000 years, and that's in the area of uh, ancient Iraq. Uh, again, the more common examples date from about 2,000 years ago. So you talked about uh, a way that they elongated the, these skulls, and I know one of the ways is head binding. And but were there other ways? How how were was that the most prevalent way that this was achieved, or um, how did they achieve, by and large, these elongated shapes? Yeah, usually by what's called cradle boarding, where mm -hmm. the new uh, you, you know the baby is is kept in a cradle. Um, and you, you know, is usually carried on the mother, sometimes father's back, and so the head is bound in place in order to make sure that it doesn't move left to right. But then uh, some cultures uh, would, on purpose, start to deform the shape of the skull. Um, so that was either, again, done by some kind of textile or string, and sometimes in combination with a board in the front or the back in order to create especially a flattening of the back of the skull and a flattening of the forehead. I, I'm curious. I don't know what the answer to this is, and I haven't come across this, but is there any record or, or even any, any type of uh, discussion anywhere as to what type of physical pain, if any, does somebody feel doing this type of process to themselves? Well, again, what seems to be the case is that it was done over a long period of time. Yeah. I think the most often was about three years. And so since a, a newborn child's skull is, is quite pliable, if you gently apply pressure, then there probably wouldn't have been much pain. And you have to take into consider, uh, consideration that, in general, all of the children to which this was done to were members of the royal family. Mm. And so if it was going to be something extremely painful or lethal, uh, the royal family would be the last members to be chosen. Huh. And how do we know how the brain grows within that type of a, a developing skull? Well, the examples that I've seen here in Peru where you have a skull which has been damaged, usually through... Uh, grave robbing, um, and so the skull is broken open, you can see clearly the depressions and outline of where the brain was in complete contact with the inside surface. So it's not like there was uh, any kind of air space or liquid hmm. space within the skull. Hmm. Interesting. So do we know why, is there any recorded, or, or perhaps is there any way we can see why they wanted this elongated shape? 
Well, the universal common theme uh, is that there are three points. The first point is that, in general, it was thought that it made the children more intelligent. Uh, the second one is that it was aesthetically pleasing. And the third one is that that is what their ancestors looked like. Hmm, that's interesting. So I have a couple theories, and they are in, in your book, uh, The Enigma of Cranial Deformation. Again, that was written with... David Hatcher Childress and Brian Forster. And again, Brian's website is brianforster.com. That's B-R-I-E-N. Last name is F-O-E-R-S-T-E-R, brianforster.com. And again, your book, The Enigma of Cranial Deformation, um, you, you talk about some theories surrounding elongated skulls. First, can you tell us about the Atlantis theory? Well, the Atlantis theory is that... Um the original uh, people who lived in so-called Atlantis, not necessarily a, a continent, but um, I think more a global ancient civilization, mm -hmm. that they naturally looked this way and that they were not human beings exactly the way that we are, but some kind of um, either earlier type of human or an offshoot of humanity. Mm -hmm. Now, what about there's also the the Nephilim theory, and then there's also the Nephilim alien theory. What what are these about? Well, the Nephilim, of course, are referred to in the Bible as being um, the offspring of fallen angels and human females. And so, um, I just actually had a film crew here uh, filming a, a series called Watchers, and they filmed Watchers number six with us over the course of two weeks. Uh, they're biblical scholars, and they definitely believe that uh, the Nephilim were real uh, beings, uh, mm -hmm. half human and half angelic, whatever that means. Um, and so that's, in general, what uh, the Nephilim connection is. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, now, do you have your own theory, or, or are you more... Some people, I'll, I'll have a, them on about a certain topic, and I'll say, what's your theory? And they don't like to speculate because they research these things. But then others do. Do you speculate on what you think the uh, the reason for all of this? Well, the main thing is that right now we're having uh, DNA testing done of uh, 12 elongated skulls from the area of Peru, um, and that uh, that is ongoing, so we don't have any results yet. But once we get results from that, um, it'll give us an indication, A, of uh, if... Uh, all of these individuals that were being tested, um, if they in fact are Homo sapiens sapiens like we are, or if there might be some kind of aberration. Um, so that's basically where I stand with the whole subject at this point. I, yeah. I'm open to almost any possible theory. It's just we do need the actual evidence to um, to move forward. Yeah, absolutely. Now, tell us about your research into the Olmecs and how they fit into the cranial uh, deformation story. Well, the Olmecs are quite fascinating, and actually David uh, Hatcher Childress has done a lot more work than I have. I'm hoping to go to Olmec country either this year or next year. Um, but the thing is that they definitely had elongated skulls, and they are really quite an obscure culture. Um, they were the antecedents or the predecessors of the um, of the Maya, 
And in fact, there's a lot of um, evidence that the so-called Mayan calendar was not created by the Maya, but it was actually the possession of the Olmecs before them. And no one really knows whether or not that calendar was invented by the Olmec or if they, in turn, inherited it from another older culture. And you're, you know, you're in Peru. What, what are your thoughts about the famous Nazca lines? And maybe give us a, a little bit of background about what these are and what you've seen there. And then tell us what, what are your thoughts about it? Okay, Nazca is about eight hours drive south of Lima, which is the capital. And the Nazca Plain is where you find the lines and animal figures. Uh, the Nazca Plain is as flat as a board and incredibly dry. They get less than one inch of rain per year, and that's helped to preserve the lines. The predominant theory now, uh, through all of my local contacts, is that the Nazca lines themselves were created by the Nazca culture somewhere between uh, the year 0 and uh, 500 AD, so they're 1,500 to 2,000 years old, and that they were made in general to tap underground water systems. Because it's such an arid environment, they were tapping underground streams that traveled uh, down from the Andes and into the ocean. Um, but the animal figures are more intriguing because it seems that the animal figures are at least a thousand years older and they were probably created by the Paracas culture. And again, the Paracas were the ones who had the elongated skulls. Do you have any theories as, or what are the prevailing theories as to how they were able to make these though? I, I don't think that I could create a, a monkey, a shape like a monkey. Um, that large on my own. Yeah, well, the thing is the lines are not difficult to create because the top surface um, at Nazca is stone or stones, as in rocks, uh, made up of um, or containing a lot of iron, red iron and black iron oxide. But underneath that surface and just barely below the surface is a white clay. So all you have to do is scratch the surface and that's what creates a line. Um, in order to make the straight lines, because Nazca is so flat, you would simply need uh, two sticks. You'd have to have one positioned in the ground, one in front of it, and then you remove the first stick and position it behind the second stick. Uh, but the animal figures, you would have to have done that more or less from uh, a vertical position. You'd have to either be up on a tower looking down and guiding the, the makers, or you'd have to be in some kind of vehicle. Uh, one has to wonder that if many of these societies did not know each other, how in the world did they all come to the conclusion that they should elongate their skulls? In other words, today I might wear uh, a pair of Nike shoes, and, and other people do, but we're getting that, I guess, propaganda through the media, through commercials, and um, we are doing it on a person-to-person -person basis. So-and-so has these shoes, I'll buy these shoes. But uh, I think the reason for the mass appeal is our television sets and maybe movies. They didn't have that back then, obviously. So how did a, a, a person in Peru decide to create elongated skulls and then someone somewhere else did. Was there an interaction between these cultures? Um, or do we see cultures so far apart that that wasn't possible, so we have to be looking at something else? 
Well, there is mounting evidence that um, thousands of years ago, definitely before Columbus, that there were maritime cultures traveling around the world. Um, and, you know, the Vikings are the obvious example, but other ones uh, in the Pacific as well. And what we can see is there seem to be two basic, uh, tre- or there's one basic trend, and that's that if the oldest ones are are found in the Fertile Crescent area of Iraq, uh, four to six thousand years ago, then it is possible through the migration of people that they could have influenced um, other, indi- you know, societies in uh, Eastern Europe, even Western Europe, uh, and into Egypt because there are definite connections between um, Iraq, ancient Iraq area, and uh, ancient Egypt. And then the the really interesting example is that in Melanesia, in uh, an area or an island area. Uh, called Vanuatu, uh, their oral tradition state, um, statements are counter to what conventional anthropology is. And anthropologists believe that these people on Vanuatu and area came from Southeast Asia, but the oral traditions of the people of those islands say that they came from Egypt. So there could have just been a gradual flow of cultural influence around the world. That's one example mm-hmm. or one possibility. The other possibility um, is that, you know, there are many different um, possible alternative ideas to it. Yeah. Um, whether I, I just personally find it difficult to believe that so many different cultures around the world would independently come up with this idea yeah. because it would have to be based on something. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it's not out of the question in your mind that we could be talking about an alternative scenario. I I definitely wouldn't um, say that's not possible. Hmm. You know, I was wondering if you could touch on the M cranium. What an inter and how did they do that? <laughs> it, it it appears to be a skull that's shaped like an M, and was and also was that uh, predominant in Asia, or did you see that pattern elsewhere? Uh, it is present or was present in Peru, uh, but very uncommon. I, I would guess one out of a hundred examples of elongated skulls in Peru would show that, or maybe even one out of 500. Uh, but it seems to be much more, have been a prevalent thing in, uh, I think, China and that part of, of, of Asia where, um, through some kind of uh, binding with maybe a, a board or something or a round uh, stick in the f- center of, of the f- of the head that they were able to do a compression, probably trying to mildly separate the two hemispheres. Uh, but, yeah, uh, you can definitely see that if you look at ancient uh, Chinese art. You'll see sculptures where they have depictions and drawings depicting that. And that's more... Uh, that was more David uh, Hatcher Childress's part of the book. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. It's very interesting, though. Uh, so, um, you know, you ha- hear a lot of talk today about giants, and someone like Lynn Marzulli would talk about Nephilim. Th- there's a movie here in the U.S. just opening called Jack the Giant Slayer. Is there a lot of mythos uh, in Peru regarding giants? Oh, definitely. <clears throat> and thanks to uh, my interaction with uh, L.A. Marzulli when he was here, uh, he's been doing a lot of research uh, in North America and in uh, in Israel and the Middle East uh, concerning giants. 
the most common uh, kind of theme is that there were, you know, these giants were obviously taller than the average person, and very often they had red hair. Uh, in Peru, there are Inca tales uh, relating to some of the megalithic buildings that uh, the Inca themselves said that when the Spanish arrived, that they, they themselves didn't build some of the buildings, but that these um, ancient race of giants were the ones responsible. Here in the United States, one of the big things is, well, there, there were giants, but we can't find really bones of giants. Uh, do you know of any bones that have been found, or is this more in mythos? No, most of the stories, and there are a lot of uh, newspaper um, articles, especially from the 19th century, of um, giants being found in the U.S., um, and that the Smithsonian basically seems to have all of them. Um, it's a very common theme that whenever one of these giants, and, you know, we're not necessarily talking 15 feet tall, but someone who's 7, maybe 8 feet tall, that when uh, a giant was found, uh, the authorities would be alerted, and the Smithsonian or other institutions basically would take them, and the majority, if not all of them, are now being held by these major institutions in storage. None of them, as far as I know, are on display. Now, again, your book, The Enigma of Cranial Deformation, you have a picture or a drawing of two Sumerian clay figurines from the Ubaid period uh, showing elongated heads and coffee bean eyes. Now, obviously, that some people would think of aliens when they see that. Um, are there a lot of drawings? I mean, I remember the Indiana Jones movie with the crystal skulls, and they, they go down into a cave, and there's these pictures of... Uh, bulbous heads, large eyes, and obviously at the end we see a UFO. At, in Peru, are there a lot of drawings of bulbous or cone-like or elongated uh, heads on walls or, or statuettes like we see with these Sumerian clay figurines? Uh, not so much in terms of, of drawings or paintings on walls, but that's something that I'm actually collecting as, uh, as I go through the antique stores in Cusco where I'm living and even on the coast, whenever I can find a figurine depicting that, I collect it. <laughs> and so I actually have quite a few of these from different parts of, uh, parts of Peru from different cultures and it's not as though these ancient people are wearing hats. I mean, these are clearly depictions of some ancestral um, beings which had elongated skulls. This has been very fascinating. Now, in closing, tell us about your website. What can people find there? And maybe talk about some of the books you have available. Um, I know you've done extensive research in, in Peru. Yeah, actually, my best website is www.hiddenincatours.com, and that has um, multiple videos, uh, slideshows, uh, a list of the uh, upcoming tours we're giving, an entire media archive, including interviews, etc. So that's uh, that's basically my my best um, the best website to look at. The other one, which is exclusively videos, is www www.hiddenincavideos.com. And if someone was going to come down to Peru, is the best place to see uh, these elongated skulls, is that at that uh, Paracas History Museum? Yeah, most definitely, because there are some in a museum nearby called the Ica Museum. Um, 
but they're behind a glass case. Uh, there's a museum, the main museum in um, in Lima, which is the Archaeology and Anthropology Museum, presently has none on display. And some have actually been taken off display from museums. But the reason why the Little Paracas History Museum is great is because we make sure that people can have one-on-one -on -one contact. We literally, on occasion, will take the skulls out of the cases for people to inspect. And we've done that uh, because I, you know, I got very angry visiting museums and having them. Uh, not only could I not uh, examine the skulls, but they wouldn't even let me photograph them. So through our open display at Paracas, uh, we've had a number of physicians and dentists and other medical personnel inspect these skulls in order to assist us in finding out who these ancient people were. Mm -hmm. I see a picture of an elongated skull from uh, Paracas, and it's now at the museum at in Ica. Is that what is that how you pronounce it? Ica. Ica. Yeah. Okay, and this skull still has red hair attached to the cranium. Is red hair uh, common in uh, Peruvian people? No, it's almost non-existent. Um, once in a while when I walk through the streets of Cusco, which is actually quite a big city, I'll, I'll catch a glimpse of someone, a native person who seems to have red hair. But what's, uh, what's intriguing is that that seems to have been a phenomenon of the Paracas elongated skull royal family, that they had genetically um, reddish auburn hair. And L.A. Marzulli actually has uh, given samples of, um, of this reddish auburn hair to Dr. Lear, who he's been working with, and hopefully Dr. Lear will be able to give us some kind of analysis um, from those examples. Are they, do you think they're expecting the red hair to uh, match up with red-haired giants or something like that? Uh, it's possible, and what most people don't realize is that red hair doesn't come from Scotland and Ireland. It actually comes from the Middle East, uh, mm. deep in antiquity. And there are still examples, if you look on the Internet, uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq and Iran, uh, you can see examples of, of people who genetically have reddish or even blonde hair and blue and green eyes, because most people would think of Middle Eastern people as being black-haired, you know, dark eyes and dark skin. Hmm. Now, one thing that surprises me about this book is that if uh, we just had the Mayan calendar, whatever you want to call it, hype or uh, speculation, in uh, late 2012, and these uh, there's pictures uh, from from the Mayan city uh, there showing cone heads of that time. So the Mayans were also involved in this, correct? Yeah, that's true. And I I personally think it's because the Maya were related to the Olmec, and they got a lot of their tradition from the Olmec. So they could have either genetically uh, gotten the elongated skull phenomen phenomenon, or they could have gotten it through uh, a ceremonial practice. And the the famous skull that looks like a pumpkin head, how was that achieved, and is that also a Mayan skull? I'm not sure of the one you're referring to specifically, but... Um, the again, the predominant shape of cranial deformation is almost like a cone head look, mm -hmm. or or a swept backwards uh, cone head look, um, or in some cases a kind of compressed um, compressed skull where it's wider than it is tall. Hmm. 
Last question. Do you think we will know in our lifetime definitively if there is a connection to, dare I say, alien life or uh, some other life out there uh, that this elongated process was uh, inspired by something otherworldly? Do you think that's possible? I think it is possible. And the thing is that also that I'm working with three different uh, genetics uh, DNA studying teams. One is uh, the group uh, located in Texas who are doing the major work, but I've also been working with Lloyd Pye of the Star Child mm-hmm. Project, mm-hmm. and uh, he actually received samples from me two years ago. Uh, so it's, it is possible through him and the other team, as well as the third team, that uh, if there are abnormalities in the genome, of these individuals, um, if they don't show up uh, to be in the uh, global database of human beings, that we might have some kind of intriguing connection with either uh, lost, you know, lost human races or lost races slash hybrids um, from elsewhere. Hmm. Fascinating. Well, uh, we'll keep in touch, and I would love to have you back sometime as all of this develops and as your research. Uh, develops into new books and and new thoughts about this area of the world and also about uh, this cranial deformation uh, phenomenon. Uh, Brian, again, your website is uh, brianforster.com for one. And again, that's B-R-I-E-N-F-O-E-R-S-T-E-R. And what was the other website, Brian? The other one is www.hiddenincatours.com. Excellent. And again, the books we've been talking about this week are The Enigma of Cranial Deformation and Lost Ancient Technology of Peru and Bolivia. Brian, thank you so much for joining us this week. Absolutely. My pleasure, Bruce. Thank you. Well, that once again was a fascinating interview with Brian Forster. We're going to have another Bruce Collins show next week, as well as a Bruce Collins show after dark next week. Thank you once again for listening, and I hope you can join us once again real soon. Good night. Hello? Hey, Brian, how are you? Oh, well, you know this is Bruce. (laughs) Hey, Bruce. Hey.